The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Presenting Season 8, Collision. Beloved. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Oh, how Shen Shui despised this man, who bent over his desk, pointedly ignoring the one who had come to give him the news he so longed to hear. And yet, he had the means and resources to combat the Thulian menace, and the general did not. And the general knew that once Dominic Verdigree was no longer distracted by the Celestial and his need to obtain the creature, he would finally bend that formidable intellect on the important problem of how to defeat the Thulians, if only as a means to save his own gutless hide. So the general would get him his toy. He would play with it and get what he wanted from it, and then they would go to work. And eventually, when the Thulians were defeated, Shen Shui would end him. The Celestial would be a valuable tool for Shen Shui once Verdigree was removed. There could only be one emperor, after all. And so the general made a perfunctory little bow to this thing he despised, and spoke to the words that Verdigree had been waiting for. The trap is ready. Verdigree's head came up, infernal fire in his eyes. When? he demanded. But the general made a hushing motion with one hand. The fewer that know, the better. But it will be soon. Sto? Red Savior stared at Untermensch in fury and astonishment. What do you mean, there is no petrol? There is no petrol, Commissar. Georgie repeated with a shrug. Is hazard of working with old equipment. Gauge reads full. Tank is empty. Delivery will not be for four days. We are near petrol station. We do not get priority. With the entire world still in the midst of rebuilding, gasoline shortages were commonplace, unless you were part of an essential service, like the police, hospital ambulances, or the military. The CCCP fell somewhere along that spectrum, but also somehow short of it. Some weeks it came down to how much threatening and cajoling Natalia could get away with being the only thing that kept the lights on and the gas tanks on the Earl's full. Natalia fumed, but what could she do? Not all the screaming or pounding a desk or threatening boots to the head would fill the empty tank. For the next four days, anywhere CCCP comrades needed to go— if they did not have some sort of power that enabled them to travel quickly, they would either have to walk or... Or call upon Echo. Yet, Savior did not want to have to go to the blue girl, who should never have been put in charge, with cap in hand begging for favors. Bella Parker was a good healer, a fine healer, but too timid to lead. Look what she was doing now. It was well past time to take the battle of the enemy, but she delayed and delayed, speaking words of caution. Words of cowardice? Maybe. She did not want to think such things of one that she had come to call Sestra, but this was war. Natalia knew that she had to think dispassionately about the problem. It was never wise to put a healer in charge of an army. They thought too much of casualties, of losses, and not enough of victory at whatever cost was required. 
Natalia reflected for a moment on how much they had already lost. How many people, how many comrades. It was a stab of pain that she quickly locked away. Yet, must focus on the moment, not the past. And, of course, at just this moment, there was an urgent delivery from Moscow waiting at the shipping depot. What it was, Savior didn't know. She only knew there would be phone calls and shouting if it was not in her hands within an hour or two, because that's how her father and Boryat showed her that they were the ones in charge of CCCP, and not her. Petty tyrannies. Well, Moscow had always worked by tyrannies, petty and not so petty, and right now she needed Moscow's goodwill. And of course the shipping company would not deliver here, oh no, it was too dangerous, they said. Which was why she had intended to send Untermensch, the best rider among the comrades, on an earl. Bah, she said, then spat. Bah, I will go myself. She could fly after all. It should not take more than half an hour, an hour at most, to go there and back. No wasted fuel that they didn't have, neat and tidy. Not advisable, Commissar, Untermensch objected. You are needed here. Even with Overwatch and Gamion, if something were to erupt, the Commissar must be in place to lead. How many times have you not shouted at the television because Nettleton's starship captain goes on away team? Stupid Svenja starship captain, she muttered, but as usual, Georgie was right. Who to send? The depot was across town and across three separate destruction corridors, impassable for anything other than the van and the earls, and a route which would take too long for one on foot. One would have to have wings. Ha! she exclaimed, snapping her fingers. Perfect. Overwatch, she ordered. Open. Comrade Sarah. As Georgie tilted his head to the side, momentarily confused, the so-called angel answered the hail on her headset. Yes, Commissar. Have you an order for me? Came the infuriatingly calm and neutral voice. Natalia not only found the angel herself irritating by virtue of simply existing, she found the woman herself doubly so because she was so impossible to read or to intimidate. She did not like the business between the Angel and Murdoch, either. She needed all of her comrades to be at their best for the coming days, and right now the Amerikansky and the Winged Woman were certainly not, between his memory and her delusions. If nothing else, however, the Angel knew how to take commands and carry them out, a trait that Natalia could certainly admire in a subordinate. Da, and having order for you. Important courier duty. You are being to fly with all haste to Express X Depot and pick a package for me. At least the angel never argued with orders. At once, Commissar, she said obediently, as Red Savior replied to the email notice from Express X with the reply that Comrade Seraphim, Nazareth, even to type the word made her irritated, was authorized to accept the parcel. There. That is sorted, she said to Georgie. Now, what other crisis is there needing my attention? Well, there is the matter of the Euros themselves, Commissar. Natalia let out an exasperated sigh. 
How many more has that Amerikanski destroyed? It was winter now, and although Atlanta seldom was cold enough for snow, the world was still white and gray. The white of bleached concrete, the gray of stone, and bare or winter-dormant trees. The gray of leaden skies through which the seraphim flew. The bleakness of the still-shattered destruction corridors oppressed her. The skies oppressed her. The chill of the air oppressed her. And yet it seemed fitting. Fitting that the ground, the sky, be dressed in white and gray. It was winter's turn to dance in the skies where she had once danced, and where now she labored, heavy wingbeat after heavier wingbeat. The cold had not mattered before. She had been indifferent to heat or cold. Now, now it seemed as if warmth never entered the core of her, except when she was near John Murdoch, and that was such a false and deceptive warmth, and a temptation, the temptation to see in him the man she had lost. No, not just that, to make him into the man she had lost, and that could not possibly be permitted. She kept her distance from him as much as possible, which was exceedingly difficult given that the commissar kept throwing the two of them together. At least this assignment was one she had been given alone. It was better for them to be apart, no matter how much she missed the man he was now. That man was a good man, but he must become something she could not foresee. He must not bind himself to her in any way. He must not ask her for direction. He must grow. And I must diminish. That is how it must be. My powers must become his. He must connect to the infinite and become something more than mortal and less than seraph with the understanding of the former and the vision of the latter. For that to happen, he must take what I have left and I must dwindle and be gone. The headset she wore chirped out its directions to her in a mechanical monotone as she flew. This landscape of alternately shattered and intact cityscape was not familiar to her, but the guidance of the computers that her headset was linked to was enough. Finally, she saw in the near distance a mathematical array of identical buildings, and the familiar orange and blue livery of ExpressX trucks. Odd. Something about this place seemed hauntingly familiar. She landed on sudden impulse in a quiet spot, where there were no trucks and no people. Nothing moved in that gray landscape of faded asphalt and concrete and metal. It was a spot that she did not recognize until she turned a little, and then, oh, then, she was struck dumb and numb with recognition. This was where she had first seen him. This was where she had first encountered him, spoken to him. This was where she had met John Murdoch. It felt like a knife to the heart, that recognition. The memory overwhelmed her, blinded her, deafened and defeated her. There he had stood, over the body of the wounded driver he had saved, 
the man who had become the Echo Meta speed freak. There he had looked at her, actually seen her for what she was, without comprehension of what he was seeing. There was the scorched, vaguely man-shaped splotch on the pavement that was all he had left of the gang leader he had slain. And there, there, there he had stood, the pain of his life standing clear in his eyes, the aching need for forgiveness, a raw wound in his soul. Without realizing it, she cried aloud, blinded, a cry of pain for her own, for there she had stood, still at one with the infinite, still at one with the song. And now she was alone. 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 So it was, she did not see the furtive movement behind her, did not sense the men around her, did not know there was anything amiss until she heard a muffled sound, like an explosion, but nearer to hand, and she whirled and saw the net in the air, the sparkling drops upon its weft like drops of black blood, did not think to call her sword of fire until it was too late, and the net settled over her, each of those drops a focus of terrible pain that drove all thought from her, and the net flattened her to the cracked asphalt, a fire with a fire that was not hers, until the sharp stab of a needle against her neck brought nothingness. How long had it been? Minutes? Hours? Days? Time was meaningless in the face of more pain than she had ever imagined it was possible to feel. She only knew the pain, and the voice of Dominic Verdigree, who asked the same questions over and over. How do I escape? How do I prevent becoming that brain in a box? How? And over and over, because she could not lie, being what she was, she choked out words he would not understand, refused to understand. I do not know. I do not know. But you can see the futures, all the futures. How do I escape? I do not know. She would wail, or scream, or whisper from cracked and bleeding lips, from a throat too raw to do more than whisper. I do not know. I am not what I was. I do not know. And so her answer never varied, not when Shen Shui tortured her with means arcane and means mundane. Not when Verdigree ordered the men clad in black to inject strange drugs that made her veins cry and sent stranger visions than she had ever seen in all of her vast experience stream through her fevered mind. Not when, in exasperation, they shattered her wings, first one and then the other. She could only repeat the truth, for that was all that was left to her. I do not know. And at length, Shen Shui finally said what she herself had been saying, in tones of detached disgust. The creature is no longer celestial. It truly does not know. We are wasting time. 
She sensed the holographic image of Verdigree approaching the perimeter of the arcane circle inscribed on the floor, felt his eyes upon her, felt his anger. But he was silent for a very long time. Then, at last, he spoke. She doesn't know anything new, but there are still memories of the future in there. We'll take her to my Scilab and I'll have them out of her with a telepath. Even if we have to carve them out of her goddamned mind, at least we'll know what to avoid. And then the footsteps, heavy and labored, light and indifferent, faded, and she was left alone with the pain of her shattered body. But piercing through the blood-red curtain of the pain came, finally, a thought. I am not what I was but I can still will my own death. She knew death, knew all the ways there were to come to that door. She had passed in and out of it countless times as escort to others, guiding them, sometimes carrying them. She had taken Matthew March through that door. It had not been permitted before, but surely it was now. She was no longer needed. John Murdoch could hear the song now, and the song would guide him. The last of her powers would go to him when she died. And Verdigree, Verdigree must not extract what little she knew of the futures from her. Above all, he must not learn of John and what John was poised to become. His psychics could and would pull that information from her mind, and then John would become his target. Death was nothing in the face of that last possibility. Yes, death would be permitted. She was sure of it. Yes. Yes, at last it had been accomplished. Her work was done. She allowed herself to let go, to fall, to fall into deep and comforting darkness. Death was easy. It was living that was hard. The pain fell away. Feelings faded. Moments were lost, though timeless time remained. From a distance, she saw the great things that burned within him, and was so proud, so proud of what they had been, of what he would be. And then that spun away into the darkness and was gone. And all she felt was the longing for her wings, to fly again to fly into the darkness, to fly into eternity. And yet, she hesitated for just a moment. Then the wordless words came to her, the last thing she needed to do, one last word of farewell that she must send out before she could be free. With all of her heart and her soul and her fading strength, she sent it. A shout. A whisper. Both. Oh, my beloved. Beloved. Goodbye. You have been listening to Collision. 
Season 8 of the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series. Season 8 is written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Music is Exciting Trailer by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast is narrated and produced by Veronica Jaguer and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. The fourth book, Collision, is available in print and ebook in December 2014 from the amazing people at Bayon Books. For more information about the series or to listen to earlier seasons, check out www.secretworldchronicle.com. Want to chat with the authors and fellow SWC fans? Join the Secret World Chronicle group on Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening.